0: This podcast has been underwritten by Cape Cod Healthcare because investing in the arts creates a healthier community. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast, a series of conversations with Cape Cod creatives. This project is a collaboration
1: between the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod and Provincetown Community Television, recorded here at the Night Owl Recording Studio at the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in Yarmouth. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast. I'm Amy Davies, the Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television.
0: And I'm Julie Wake, the Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod, continuing our exploration of the process. On this episode, we're talking with photographer Julia Kumes about her medium as a vehicle for social justice.
1: Born and raised in South Africa, Julia Coombs now calls Cape Cod home. Her passion for storytelling and capturing real moments of human connection and intimacy are evident through her diverse body of work, which has appeared in major publications such as the New York Times and National Geographic. Her current work focuses on exploring stories about education, the struggles women and girls face, and conservation issues, particularly in Africa and East Asia.
0: Welcome, Julia. Thank you, Amy. So, Amy, what do
1: you want to learn today? There's so many things I want to learn. I kind of want to geek out and talk about gear, but I won't do that. Oh, yeah. Um, But I'm really interested in um, storytelling Mm. in general and how uh, you enter a community and um, tell their story Mm -hmm. and and get to know the people and... um, are able to have a, the sensitivity that you have in your photographs for these people that you may or may not have known before.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm really curious to learn a little bit more about Julia. I feel like I have seen her around <laughs> and worked with her on so many different things, and she's an arts fellow. She's an Arts Foundation of Cape Cod fellow from 2017, and I know her work. I mean, I can recognize your your photos wherever I go. And I'm I'm so moved. I'm really curious about the person. And I feel like I don't really know you that well <laughs> as a person. And I, I feel like I know you as an artist. So I'm excited to learn, you know, how you're here from South Africa. So maybe we should start with that. Maybe we should. We've we've heard it's a good story. Yeah. I'm <laughs> dying to hear this.
2: So welcome. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you want to hear a little bit about My childhood and how I came to the yeah, I would love that. Okay, well, um, I was born in South Africa during um, the apartheid era. Actually, I was born in a little two-bed hospital. My dad was teaching at what was at the time the only black university in South Africa um, during apartheid. The same university that Nelson Mandela and a lot of the political leaders actually attended. So he was teaching there when my sister and I were born. So we were literally born in a tiny little rural two-bed hospital, and then moved to Johannesburg, um, where my father taught at another university there. And the whole time I was growing up, my parents were, you know, very critical of the apartheid government and really felt that. Um, things were not going to change. There was just a sense of things were getting more and more sort of fascistic and it was martial law, essentially, when I was growing up. And I think they really were despondent about South Africa's future and um, the idea that their children were growing up in such a segregated, you know, sort of hate-filled society. So um, when I was about, when I was a teenager, my parents were both psychologists, and when I was a teenager, they decided that we would be moving into the psychiatric residence. (laughs) My mom took a job leading the psychiatric residence as a way to save money to try to leave the country. (laughs) So I was a teenager at the time. My parents told us we were moving in there, and we spent the next two and a half years living with about 35 schizophrenic and manic-depressive people in close quarters. And, of course, none of my school friends were allowed to visit me because their parents didn't approve. I had... I think one friend visited and so for the next two and a half years I actually spent a lot of time with the residents at the psychiatric residence, and there were fascinating people actually quite a few artists there some really brilliant people who had had breakdowns um, you know And either they were bipolar or, you know, schizophrenic or whatever. So also quite some diagnosed geniuses who had been, like, writing doctoral exams and had a breakdown. So I was, you know, in this very unusual environment as a teenager. And um, so after a few years, my parents said that they were going to go and look for a country to move to. And so we went with them to Europe and kind of looked at a few English-speaking countries there, and then we had to go back to South Africa to continue school, and they went on to find other possibilities. And they were using the sort of 1980s version of couchsurfers.com, where it was a big book that you called people up ahead of time and made an arrangement to come and stay with them, and in in exchange, you agreed to have people stay at your house in South Africa if people were to come there. And um, so they literally went, you know, to other English-speaking countries, you know, United States, Australia, New, um, not sure they went to New Zealand, Tasmania, Canada, and were basically looking for a country that they could possibly get jobs in and move to. And they were actually on their way to Australia from the U.S. and stopped on the island of Hawaii, um, in, in the Hawaiian Islands. Um, they didn't really want to go there; they figured it was a tourist trap. But using that 1980s version of Carsurface.com, they ended up staying with some lovely people and just had a really magical time there and felt that it was so racially integrated compared to what we were growing up with. You know, you really couldn't tell what race people were. There was a lot of, um, you know, intermarriage Japanese with Caucasian Chinese, Polynesian, everything imaginable. And so they came back to South Africa and they're like, guess where we're going to move to. (laughs) I mean, at at the time, it was just really a pipe dream. There was a state job that was available um, that my dad could potentially apply to, but he had to prove over the course of time that he wasn't taking a job from an American. So it was quite a process. And we wouldn't know for at least a year whether he would get that job. So in the meantime they were concerned that we were getting sort of at an older age and they wanted to get us to the states before you know we were out of high school so they said would you be open to moving to the states without us for a year and potentially staying with an American family and so my sister and I had to discuss and you know we sort of felt this was a very big decision and of course we said that we would and so they put this ad in in a community magazine basically saying like two young South African girls looking for a home for a year you know we'll pay a certain amount of money and in exchange you know um, for looking after our daughters so Americans being the generous souls that they are about five families came forward and offered and and we also um, had applied to a really good high school there and gotten in and got some scholarship money and so the next thing, we were off to Hawaii with my dad, and he settled us in, and we had a kind of dinner party with these five families and um, ended up living with one of them who had a daughter our age, and that's kind of the crazy story of how we came to the United States. <laughs> wow. Oh, um, I can't yeah. believe that happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So
0: you're you're so independent from such an early age.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I was literally um, just just about 15 and a half, you know, just about to turn 16 when this happened. Um, And the first year was incredibly difficult. I mean, I basically said goodbye to my entire childhood, all my friends, Mm -hmm. my parents, everything that was familiar um, to me. And I really had a sense that I'd sort of died and was reborn in a new universe, you know, that was completely unfamiliar, like all the rules were different. you know, everything from the accents to the way you dress to um, everything was like a new universe. So
0: that's incredible. Wow. And
2: that it was before FaceTime,
1: so you weren't even seeing
2: oh, yeah. it, there wasn't the comfort right. of seeing your parents. Yeah, We spoke to them once a week on a Sunday for just a few minutes because it was very expensive and the you know exchange rate was very tough and, you know they were basically spending all their money just to tr- make try to make this move happen. So yeah, it was completely and very you know, painful separation. <laughs> Are you the oldest? Or? I'm the. Um, my sister is one year older than me. So. Okay.
0: And did they? They made it to Hawaii a yes, year later. Yeah. So a year <laughs> later,
2: my dad finally got the job and moved to Hawaii, and then we. My mom was actually still in South Africa doing a PhD, so she couldn't quite leave yet. So she ended up coming another year later. So. We basically never really completely lived together as a family again, um, because then my sister and I were kind of off to to college. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like sort of a a abrupt ending to our childhood.
0: (laughs) Wow. And are your parents still in Hawaii?
2: Yes, they are actually on a different island. But yeah, yeah, they're still there. And, you know, they're wonderful. Although looking back, I'm sure a lot of people would be like, wow, that's really different than the way maybe... American, par- I don't know. It's,
0: it's well, it's so it's so interesting because they really prioritized your education. Mm. Yes, and that's true. Your who future, you, yeah, your future, and who you were being surrounded yeah. by and informed yeah. by.
2: Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. And they really gave up. I mean, they were very established in South Africa, and they had you know friends from their entire lives, and so they were really starting all over again. They were in their mid forties, and. Of course, at the time, I thought they were so old and, you know, (laughs) essentially I'm kind of the age they were when they left. So, (laughs) you know, that was quite a realization to imagine starting all over again in another country at the same age.
1: Well, I was going to ask you uh, where you found your love of travel, but... um I guess (laughs) after that experience going somewhere for a short period of time probably isn't impactful to your life the way it might be for me who stays at home. Yeah.
2: Well, actually um, I mean, before we came to the United States, we traveled a lot with my parents when we were kids. Um, We traveled a lot in Africa. We had a big old Land Rover and drove around Southern Africa and also spent a few months traveling in Europe and their parents, my parents just took us out of school and we traveled in Europe and stayed with relatives in Germany and so we had that experience of traveling and I always absolutely loved it. It was to me the most magical thing to be in another place and learn about another culture and just be in this you know, completely different environment. So I always loved it and embraced it um, and it never seemed scary to me. Mm. And When I came to the United States, you know, I immediately had to adapt to a new environment. I mean, you know, going to an American high school from a South African high school, showing up in long Indian skirts (laughs) with scarves. And that was the sort of fashion at my high school in South Africa. And then arriving at a high school in Hawaii where on the first day everybody was wearing shorts and my sister and I were wearing these long dresses and scarves. And, you know, we were so out of our element And there was such a sense of like, oh, my God, we have to completely change ourselves and adapt. Um, I felt like it really taught me how to quickly sort of learn to connect with people in a way that maybe I, you know, wasn't. I mean, if you don't leave where your comfort zone, you don't learn to connect with people in different ways. Um, So I think that was like an early lesson about how to connect with people no matter how different they are from you even though it was very hard as a teenager, but easier now.
1: So when did you discover your love for photography?
2: Actually, in South Africa. um, My parents gave me a camera when I was about 13 and a half years old. It was an old Pentax Spotmatic camera. Mm And I just remember putting film in for the first time and going out and photographing and my mom actually had a dark room when I was a child and I was always sort of intrigued by what she was doing down in the dark room it was sort of magical seeming and so when I got my own camera I went to my school photography teacher and asked if I could you know learn some basics about the lab and just outside of school and so I did and I just absolutely immediately fell in love with it and begged my dad to help me build a dark room which he did um, help me with. And so I, I just felt like from that moment onwards, you know, I was walking around Johannesburg taking photos and also in the psychiatric residence. Actually, a lot of my first subjects were the psychiatric patients in, in, in the psychiatric residence we lived in, um, because they were often just kind of sitting there willing to be photographed. Um,
0: yeah. And your style is very, you know, up close, very yeah. present. You've, even now, I, I don't know what your work look. I would love to see those photos. Yeah, that's a really that's really interesting, because I love how present your photos are now. You really capture kind of the essence of the person you are photographing. Like you feel like you could reach in yeah. to the photograph. It's, they're actually, beautiful. it's funny
2: because I I actually have found you know my archives like sort of from teenage years. Also from when I came to the States, I continued photography. I, my, I always had a scholarship job in high school and later on as well, just basically teaching other students to use the lab and and changing the chemicals and all that stuff. I found a trove of some of my old photographs. And my style, you could still see a very, very similar style even back then. Like I can completely recognize like the way I was shooting then is, you know, not... I mean, obviously it's... You know, different, but yeah. it's very similar. Like I think I, and I noticed this when I teach photography that everybody has such a unique way of seeing. You can send 10 people out in one location and they're going to come back with 10 completely different versions of that place. And after a while, you start recognizing your student's style. And similarly with other photographers, you know, people just have a unique way of seeing mm-hmm. from a very young age.
1: And so when you're shooting, because you do have an intimate style, how do you how do you do that? Is it more of a street style or what what's
2: Well th- Honestly the projects that I really care I mean the ones that I'm really excited about, the ones that are sort of more intimate and more long term where you get to know people, not just I you know, that sort of one off quick street grab that feels sometimes can feel a bit exploitative. Especially if it's people in vulnerable situations, so I prefer a more in-depth story where you, you know, really get to know the person or have some kind of, you know, proper contact with them and ask them questions and let them know that you're not there to exploit them, but rather to tell their stories in a, in an authentic way. So that's really my preferred version of photographing. I wouldn't really say I'm a street photographer, although when I travel, I take you know, street photos, or if it's part of a story, then, you know, a street photo can can be part of a story, but that's really not essentially the, the, the kind of, the more storytelling mm-hmm. images to me are the more moving, more real feeling. So you sort of are,
1: like, embedded in the, the situation? Well, for I- instance,
2: um, you know, I've worked on Um, different kinds of projects. One I did, this would be a good example of one I did in India about this very sort of antiquated system of religiously sanctioned prostitution where young girls are married to this deity, and once they're married to this deity, they spend the rest of their lives basically working as sex workers and everybody's making money off of them. So when I was working on that project, I interviewed quite a lot of these young girls Um, and I also interviewed like social workers who worked with them and I interviewed organizations that were involved in empowering them, schools that were involved in teaching their children to try to break the cycle. So everybody who saw me photographing knew what I was doing there. It wasn't just like some random person taking pictures of them without explanation Um, and there was a sense of you know I did a lot of interviews, asked them questions try to give them the opportunity to share their story so it wasn't a superficial version. It was a more in-depth, you know, sort of storytelling.
0: So you, since we're on that subject, um, your focus has been on the struggles of women and girls. And when did that interest start? Because it's it's really, you've really gone in, in deep. Yeah, I think that, you know, having grown up in South Africa was
2: sort of really influenced my interest in in telling stories that I felt were not being heard or needed to be told. In South Africa when I was growing up, there was such censorship. Um, I remember this one really powerful moment when I opened uh, my dad's newspaper and there was empty space. It was just a, a big, you know, square empty space where a photograph should have been. And when do you ever see an empty space in a newspaper? Never. So I asked my dad about it, and he basically said it's an article referring to Nelson Mandela, who at the time was completely banned. So you could not publish, f- publish a photo of him, hear anything he'd said, read anything he'd written. And so since the newspaper couldn't publish a photo of him, they just used a white space, which was brilliant because it made more of a statement than having than having nothing or having a photo even. And um, I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's so powerful that that we can't, how powerful could a photograph be that people are so afraid of it, the government is so afraid of it, they will suppress it. So I think, you know, between that and other uh, moments where, you know, South Africa was written into the constitution was actually that whites were superior and that men were superior. I and mean, there was all, you know, it was just so blatantly <laughs> awful. <laughs> That I always had this incredible sense of injustice about it, and mm. um, you know, just really felt like a, just I did not feel aligned with the, the the powers that were in in control at the time, and just mm. so I always felt this feeling of there were vulnerable people, there were you know, people whose stories were not being heard because of who they were, and so I think that that sort of sense of and women obviously were I felt I was seeing more voicelessness amongst women there was just a sense that you know women didn't get the same kind of credence that men did or the same kind of positions of power you know so that was one of the things so you saw an opportunity
0: to do that yeah so I think I always
2: felt like Mm -hmm. I think maybe I and also as a woman as a girl and as a woman I always um really connected with other women's struggles and
0: have you through these opportunities to hear stories of other women and and children being exploited and what kinds of uh, or kind of have you had revelations of like wow we're all the same or we all share this or I mean I think that photo the lack of photo is such a poignant moment for you yeah where you were like what a difference a photo can make oh yeah yeah. I
2: definitely have had many moments where I've just really realized that a lot of the people who I have met or photographed who are in very vulnerable situations are just there because of the chance of birth and you know sort of um, I remember interviewing women in a brothel in India and you know, so many of them just were so incredibly disempowered. They were basically there because their families had put them into the situation because their families were poor, and this was a means of getting money. And um, so they were, you know, being already exploited by their families, and then by the brothel owners and the men who were treating them badly. And then on top of it, if it, they had no recourse, so when somebody was abusive to them, they could they tried to report it to the police, but then the police end up. Basically, say, you know, threatening to take them in and the police are very abusive to them and often will, you know, take sexual favors, you know, threatening to, you know, arrest them otherwise because they're prostituting themselves. Um, So they just were so incredibly disempowered and people afterwards when, you know, I actually did like a multimedia piece of this story with their voices and and people would say to me how come these women talk to you like why would they want yeah. to why would they share their stories with you and i thought about it what struck me was that nobody in their lives everything that they was that was expected of them was either people either wanted sex from them or their children wanted money from them nobody ever asked them what their experience was. So it was, I think, to them very empowering and validating more than anything to have somebody ask them about their experience. And so they told me their stories very passionately and very openly because I think it, they felt validated that this, you know, white woman from another country was actually bothering to ask them about their experience. So that's one thing that I realized early on as a photographer that if you're coming from a respectful and a place of respect and interest rather than a place of exploitation, you know, people will share incredibly intimate stories with you because they understand that you are really interested in what they have to say. So I think that I always say that you know about eighty percent of photography is really about connecting with people. You know, the rest of the technical stuff, anybody can learn the technical stuff. But the stuff that really is the powerful stuff is about connecting with people and and finding a way to really communicate human to human. And so that's something I, I think that informs a lot of the work I do. I mean, I did, you know, stories here on the Cape about breast cancer, and I'm working on another project right now. That's also a sort of very intimate project. Um, and I think if you approach it, you approach human beings as as you know a loving, open-hearted human being, people will share very powerful stories, and those stories will then affect other people and move other people. and you know it has this kind of um, rippling effect then that others will be moved by those stories. And that's my hope as a photographer too. Make small changes through storytelling.
0: Mm. You know, can you tell us about the new project?
2: Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I. This is kind of the first time I'll be talking about it publicly. My new project. Um, so I have a um, a nephew who is trans. My sister's daughter at the age of five um, basically said, "I'm a boy," and um, so the last five years um, I've been kind of very involved in um, his process Um, he's now living as a boy and so because of his experience I've just sort of gotten so invested in that the whole um, sort of a question about gender identity and transition and all that and it made me think about my own community here on the Cape and how sort of invisible the trans community is, and I think it's partly because it's a tourist economy and small town New England, that kind of thing. Um, so I've actually started a project doing portraits of um, trans people on Cape Cod. Have had some, uh, it's, you know, I've I've probably done about six shoots so far, and have sort of similar to my breast cancer story, where it's very collaborative and in-depth interviews and basically ask people how they want to be photographed, you know, what their story is and what story they want to tell. And um, so I'm sort of going to couple the, you know, these large images with the storytelling, um, and the stories are just so powerful and moving, and I'm all the people I've met through this project so far have been just inspiring and interesting, and um, it's cool I get to ask questions And people have been so open with me sharing their stories. So that's my new project, yeah.
1: And do you think it's um, sometimes powerful to come from a place where you don't have as much understanding when you enter, but you have Mm. openness to, to hear people's stories, to be able to then assist them tell the story if that's not
2: necessarily something they're going to do on their own? Absolutely. I mean, I... I mean, I had some education just because of my exposure to my nephew and watching a lot of documentaries and trying to, you know, sort of educate myself about the subject. Um, But I think it's because I'm so invested in it and I have such empathy and interest and um, it's a subject I feel passionately about because I have a family member who's so, uh, you know, sort of engaged in this subject. I feel that I think my subjects pick up on that and they realize that that I'm authentic about telling their stories and that it's totally collaborative and they kind of get to express themselves. You know, I'm just sort of the vehicle through which they could p- express themselves.
1: Um, so. I'm also curious... Um say, like the project in India, do those women ever get to see the final product or or some of the, on the screen of your camera, do they get to see the images and how do they react to um, being held in such esteem
2: to have their stories told? I mean, I do often show people photos of themselves at the back of my camera because I think that is, you know, empowering for people. A lot of the women that I photographed in India, I mean, I... I was working with a social worker who visits them regularly and has a lot of contact with them. So she did see the story and I you know hope that she shared um, the project with them. I can't guarantee that though because a lot of these women are very transitory and their lives are extremely unstable and you know they may not have had that kind of follow-up. But I have had other situations where I've showed people images and given them prints afterwards. If if I'm able to, if there's mm-hmm. that kind of contact, then I do try to you know give people prints, and
0: you know have them sort of see the final product. I've actually witnessed an opening of your breast cancer uh, shoot, and uh, it was incredible because she had the women there who she photographed and just to see them see themselves (laughs) was really powerful. It gave me chills, you know, that they had evolved into, you know, they were in different stages and yeah, and those prints, they were also like sort of almost life-sized. So
2: um, for them to see themselves in these sort of life-sized prints,
0: um, I mean, They seemed to really enjoy it. They (laughs) did. And their families really were, like, embracing them. And it just was, uh, it was really interesting to see how empowering um, a photograph of something that is so horrific and, you know, that has probably, you know, it's the worst news you could ever uh, hear. And then you're, you know, you're seeing yourself kind of in this image of just beauty and kind of um, honest, yeah. this authentic state. Yeah. I saw the families really kind of um, bond over that, and very powerful. Yeah. So you must have been really proud of yeah, that Yeah, it project. was really wonder- It was really fun watching the women mm. see themselves and the
2: family members see themselves yeah. because uh, you know all of those photos again were collaborative. So they really got to choose kind of where they were, you know, who how they were photographed, like what their happy place was or what their story was. So,, um, you know, like one woman was photographed like in a pond in the lily pads, and you know, things like that, or like Sarah Burrell, Um, yeah. she really wanted, she has tattoos on her chest and she didn't have reconstruction. and there are these, you know, beautiful tattoos mm-hmm. that symbolize um, connection to her mother and sister. And um, so she wanted th- to show those tattoos. So everybody kind of chose mm-hmm. how they wanted to present themselves. and so, you know, I think it was fun for them to see how, what they envisioned, you know.
0: Yeah, what was the goal of that? Because, I mean, I'm not describing it as (laughs) (laughs) the way it really should be translated, because what you did was really, really beautiful. So what was the end goal for that? The stories of these families and... Yeah, I think the end goal was to tell people stories, you know. Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, uh, that exhibit you know, pe- A lot of people saw that because it was at the cultural center for mm-hmm. a while, and then it traveled to a few other places. And it actually sprung out of the initial photo, which was of this woman who called me up many years ago and basically said, I'm about to have a double mastectomy, or a mastectomy, and would you be willing to photograph me the day before because I want to sort of memorialize this moment. Mm. And that's actually how this project started because I got this you know, beautiful photograph of her. She actually had the line drawn in her chest by mm-hmm. the surgeon the day before because, you know, they, to, you know, make sure it was um, centered. And so I, and she just has this amazing expression in her face, um, just sort of like a sort of vulnerable and yet very powerful expression. And I had that photograph in some other shows, and people would come up to me and say, that photo just moved me so much and let me tell you my story or let me tell you my sister's story or my wife's story or, you know, so many people seem to have this emotional connection to that image mm. so I started thinking about all the other people out there who had similar stories and actually I had some friends who had gone through breast cancer and um, it just seemed so prevalent in my life all of a sudden so I felt that it just needed to be explored further and you know what is the point of any art right is mm-hmm. to uh, move people and maybe make get them to think about things in a different way or get them to care about something that they might not otherwise think
0: about or empathize or mm-hmm. yeah. it's definitely a great example we always talk about this at the arts foundation is how we use art to tell very complicated stories right and I think your new project is a really another really good example of that is how the artist just has a way to navigate that like nobody else and um and so that's you know to us at the at the foundation it's it's really critical that we see artists like you doing this type of work so it's incredible another question for you that I was thinking of when you were um talking about kind of your pilgrimage here to the States. Um, When did you go back to South Africa? Because I know you go back. Yeah. And what was that like and what projects came out of that? Um, I actually went back
2: when I was off during graduate school for photojournalism. Uh, You know, I studied photojournalism and I had to produce a master's project. And so the master's project I ended up doing was about kids growing up in post-apartheid South Africa. So this was about seven years after apartheid ended. Wow. So I went back and got a very small grant to do this project where I basically recruited about seven kids from different racial and economic backgrounds and and kind of followed their lives for a number of months. And some of the kids I actually recruited from the school I went to as a child. So I literally went back to my own neighborhood, which when I was growing up was completely segregated, and white, and now was much more integrated. And um, so these were the first kids who were born after apartheid ended. So at this point, you know, it was only seven years, so it was pretty early on yeah. after apartheid ended. But um, so I just kind of wanted to see how South Africa was changing and how these kids' lives, you know, were different than maybe their predecessors would have yours. been. Yeah, or yeah. mine. And it was really fascinating. You know, at the time, a lot of, not that much had changed. So some of the kids, especially the kids in more rural areas, their lives were not that different from what they would have been under apartheid. But then in the in the more suburban areas or urban areas, there was beginning to be more integration because schools were integrated and so kids were spending time together. And um, so you could already see change and now more recently I've gone back to South Africa quite a few times because I've been working for an organization that offers higher education to refugees so the last year and a half I've literally been to all sorts of different African countries as well as Lebanon photographing these refugee education programs and some of the programs were in Cape Town South Africa so I've been spending so I've been back to South Africa twice just in the last like year so I've sort of seen the evolution of South Africa's post-apartheid era and, you know, more and more integration. Um, there's obviously still, you know, the sort of legacy of apartheid haunting the country. But um, there's also, it's very different from what I grew up with. Mm. So I always love going back to South Africa. I always, it always feels like home no matter how long I'm away from there. I always just feel like, oh, this is normal life. This is real life again. <laughs> oh. Life was like, on you know, something else for That many years,
0: right? Like that feeling when you first hit Hawaii. Yeah, like like, a stranger in a strange land. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And then you go home and you're like, oh yeah, this is normal.
2: Yeah, it's like just the accents, the sense of humor, the smells, the. It just feels like okay, that's normal life. That's what I've been talking about all (laughs) along. Do you have
1: any desire to go back permanently?
2: Um, I mean, every time I'm there, I always feel like, oh my god, I could move here in about two seconds. But you know, there's also so many things about it that are very difficult and there's just you know economically it's still struggling and there's a lot of crime and um you know there isn't the kind of opportunity there that you know that i've i mean i i am very grateful to all the educational opportunity i've had in the u.s and um i mean i know that i've had incredible opportunities here that i wouldn't have had had i stayed there but of course you know Mm. your childhood heart is always kind of pining for the place where mm-hmm. it was formed, you know, mm. <laughs> the landscape, the wildlife, the feeling, the, you know, the atmosphere. Um, and South Africa is a very, very exciting place to be. It's very racially, you know, sort of diverse and has an incredible energy about it. It's got mm. incredible music and art scene and theater, and it's very, it's a very vital place. It's got a, a lot of vitality um, mm. and sort of youthful energy. Um, I will that I always love
0: about it. So it'll mm-hmm. always be attractive to me. Mm. <laughs> Tell me um, a little bit about purposeful nomad. Oh, okay. So, in in the last um, year or so, I connected
2: with an organization, a women's travel company, mm-hmm. and I led a Group to Cuba um, earlier this year, a group of women of uh, like a photo workshop to Cuba for a week, and it was really wonderful experience. Um, and I'm actually going to be leading another one in this coming March to Cuba again with the same organization, Purposeful Nomad. So it's a women's organization that basically, you know, offers. Adventure travel, that's also sort of meaningful. So you connect with community as well as have, you know, wonderful um, travel experiences. So it's, it's sort of trying to take travel to a slightly more meaningful community engagement level. Um, so it's a great organization.
0: And, and do you mentor during the week? <laughs> I basically teach to- them
2: photography. I mean, yeah. basically we do like an initial sort of introductory slideshow. And yeah. then as, you know, we go out mm-hmm. and photograph things that I think are interesting to photograph mm-hmm. and then we um, have one-on-one critique sessions where the students meet with me and the participants meet with me individually and then we have a final sort of slideshow slash dinner at the end that's like very celebratory and everybody gets to see each other's work and... Um, I also take photos of the participants the whole time so at the end we also have like a really fun you know slideshow of everybody having an awesome time in Cuba <laughs> that's incredible um, I've, that's I've such learnt- a fun journey yeah. e-
0: every year I read about it and I'm like i really got to do that one of these <laughs> years <laughs> it is it was really
2: fun um, The it's such a bonding place to be as well because you don't have a lot of internet connectivity okay. so every night we would have dinners together and have great conversations and you really bond i mean you really bond and so the group that i went with in march we've already had like two reunions since um (laughs) since we came back and you know they're already like where's the next workshop going to be you know so we're talking about maybe doing one in um, the greek isles or um vietnam or something you know down the road so we need a failed trip Amy. yeah <laughs> I think we <laughs> need to take the show <laughs> on to, the road I we need to do a podcast Cuba from Cuba's the, definitely one Cuba. of the most like interesting places in terms of the arts and everything as well and I have to say this one thing about Cuba that amazes me so ironically the artists there are the wealthy people in the society <gasps> what? yes because unlike everybody else who makes, makes $25 a month you know yeah. because that's the way the communism works artists have access to global markets So, um, and Cuban art is like a hot commodity, so the artists are the wealthy people in society and they're really revered there. The culture really, really respects the arts and, um, so... Mm -hmm. Oh, I need to learn more about that. That yeah, is really it's interesting. Amazing. It's really incredible. We, uh, it's funny because when we were on our trip, I s- would see a nice house, and I'd be like, oh my God, who would live in a house like that? And, and our guide is like, oh, that must be an artist. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if- Are you like, things- what? Yeah.
0: <laughs> As it should be. Yes, exactly. That's incredible.
1: So you have a, a gallery slash workshop slash studio space here at um, the Cultural Center. Let's talk about how people can become involved in, um, in your photography, whether they are viewing or participating.
2: Yeah, so I have a space here, a really beautiful space upstairs, where there's five artist studios, and mine is um, one of them. The idea is, you know, for a community to be able to see our work, um, so people can come here anytime during the hours that the Cultural Center is open, 9 to 5 during the week, and then uh, a little bit more limited on weekends, I think till noon or something. And then also, I teach classes, and the idea is that artists are sort of mentors in the community as well, that people can connect with. And I, you know, have mentored um, young students, you know, teenagers, and I've also worked with the Rise and Shine program, which is a wonderful mm-hmm. program here at the Cultural Center that teaches at at-risk youth or offers programming to at-risk youth. People can come by, you know, and see the work, or they can take a class i also offer i also teach classes here um in the in the evenings um at different periods of time not all year long but when i'm around long enough to teach a class (laughs) and also take private lessons with me so it's basically a space for people to come get inspired about photography and and maybe learn as well
1: fantastic
0: So, Julie, what, was oh, your, what did you, learn? Yeah. What did you uh, learn today? What didn't I learn today? I, know. Um, I learned more about Julia Cubes that I just had no idea what a fascinating person you are. And I, I feel like there's way more. There's way more. We have to have coffee. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be a part two to this because um, that is really interesting and it, It makes so much sense about why your work is so powerful. Absolutely. And I just, I'm really so happy that you're here on Cape Cod. So thank you for for the work that you do. Mm -hmm. And I just can't wait to see what you're doing with your transgender focus. And and that exhibit is just going to be, it's so timely and powerful. So thank you for the work that you do.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again to our guest photographer, Julia Coombs. For this episode of the Creative Exchange Podcast, I'm Amy Davies,
0: the Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television. And I'm Julie Wake, Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. Until next time, arts matter.
1: Support for the Creative Exchange Podcast is made possible by Delbrook JKS. Music for the Creative Exchange podcast is the work of Jordan Renzi, produced in association with Billingsgate Records by Jordan Renzi and Andrew Staker at Big Red Studios in Wellfleet. The Creative Exchange podcast is brought to you by the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod, Provincetown Community Television, and the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in South Yarmouth. In the desert, to the oasis, this time. No, this time, and this time, there's no mistake. No, this time, and this time, I'm not afraid. Yes,